Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Dry by Jane Harper, read for you by Stephen Shanahan. Chapter 18 The Hadler's farm looked different as Fork pulled up. The tattered yellow crime scene tape had been removed from the front door. On either side, the curtains and blinds were pulled wide and every window was propped ajar. The mid-morning sun was already fierce and Fork reached for his hat as he stepped out of the car. He tucked the box of Karen's and Billy's school things under his arm and walked up the path. The front door was open. Inside, the smell of bleach had eased a little. Fork found Barb crying in the master bedroom. She was perched on the edge of Luke and Karen's queen-size bed, the contents of a drawer upended onto the pale green duvet. Balled-up socks and crumpled boxer shorts mingled with loose coins and pen lids. Tears slid from Barb's cheeks onto a piece of coloured paper in her lap. She jumped when Fork knocked gently, and as he went to her, he could see she was holding a handmade Father's Day card. She wiped her face on her sleeve and flapped the card in Fork's direction. No secret safe from a good clean-out, is it? Turns out Billy was as bad at spelling as his father. She tried to laugh, but her voice broke. Fork felt her shoulders heave as he sat down and put his arm around her. The room was stiflingly hot as sweltering air seeped in through the open windows. He didn't say anything. Whatever the windows were letting out of that house was more important than anything they could let in. Jerry asked me to come by, Falk said when Barb's sobs subsided a little. She sniffed. Yes, love, he said. He's clearing out the big barn, I think. Did he say what it was about? Falk said, wondering when, if ever, Jerry would see fit to confide in his wife. Barb shook her head. No. Maybe he wants to give you something of Luke's, I don't know. It was his idea to do this clear-out in the first place. He says it's time we faced it. The final sentence was almost lost, as she picked up a pair of Luke's socks and dissolved into fresh tears. I've been trying to think if there's anything Charlotte might like. She's pining so badly. Barb's voice was muffled behind a tissue. Nothing we do seems to help her. We've left her with a sitter but Jerry actually suggested bringing her with us, see if being around her old things calmed her. There's no way I'm allowing that, I told him. There's no way I'm bringing her back to this house after what happened here. Fork rubbed Barb's back. He glanced around the bedroom while she cried. Apart from a layer of dust, it was neat and clean. Karen had tried to keep the clutter under control, but there were enough personal touches to make the room inviting. Framed baby photos stood on top of a chest of drawers that looked of good quality but was probably second or even third hand. Any money for decorating had clearly been channelled towards the children's rooms. 
Through a gap in the wardrobe, Falk could see rows of clothes suspended on plastic hangers. On the left, women's plain-fitted tops hung next to blouses, work trousers, the odd summer dress. Luke's jeans and T-shirts were crammed with less thought on the right. Both sides of the bed appeared to have been slept in regularly. Karen's bedside table had a toy robot, a tub of night cream and a pair of reading glasses on top of a pile of books. A phone charger was plugged in on Luke's side, next to a dirty coffee cup, hand-painted with the word Daddy spelled out in spidery letters. The pillowcases still had the shadows of dents in them. Whatever Luke Hadler had been doing in the days before he and his family died, Falk thought, it hadn't been sleeping on the couch. This was definitely a room for two. An image of Falk's own bedroom flashed into his mind. He mostly slept in the middle of the bed these days. His bedspread was the same navy blue he'd had as a teenager. No one who had seen it in the past couple of years had got comfortable enough to suggest something more gender-neutral. The cleaning service that came to his flat twice a month often struggled to find enough to do, he knew. He didn't hoard, he didn't keep much for sentimental reasons and he'd made do with whatever furniture he'd been left with three years earlier, when his two-person flat had become home to just one. You're a closed book, she'd said one final time before she'd left. She'd said it a lot over the two years they'd been together, first intrigued, then concerned, finally accusing. Why couldn't he let her in? Why wouldn't he let her in? Did he not trust her, or did he not love her enough? His response to that question hadn't come fast enough, he'd realised too late. A fraction of a moment's silence had been long enough for both of them to hear the death knell. Since then, Falk's own bedside table traditionally held nothing more than books, an alarm clock, and occasionally an ageing box of condoms. Barb sniffed loudly, bringing him back into the room. Falk took the Father's Day card from her lap and looked around in vain for somewhere suitable to put it. See, that's exactly the problem, Barb said, her red eyes watching him. What on earth am I supposed to do with all their things? There's so much and there's nowhere to put anything. I can't fit it all in our house, but I can hardly give everything away like none of it matters. Her voice was high-pitched as she started snatching up odd items within reach and clutching them to her chest. Underpants from the bed, the toy robot, Karen's glasses. She picked up the books from the bedside table and swore loudly. Oh, for God's sake, these are bloody library books. How overdue are these going to be? She turned to Fork, red-faced and angry. No one tells you this is how it's going to be, do they? Oh, yes, they're all so sorry for your loss, all so keen to pop around and get the gossip when it happens, but no one mentions having to go through your dead son's drawers and return their library books, do they? No one tells you how to cope with that. With a flash of guilt, Falk pictured the extra box of Karen's and Billy's belongings he'd left outside the bedroom door. He plucked the books from Barb's hands, put them under his arm and steered her firmly out of the bedroom. I can look after that for you. Let's just... He ushered her straight past Billy's room and emerged with some relief into the bright kitchen. He guided Barb to a stool. Let's get you a cup of tea. He finished, pulling open the nearest cupboards. He hadn't the slightest idea what he might find there, but even crime scene kitchens usually had mugs. Barb watched him for a minute, then blew her nose and climbed off the stool. 
She patted his arm. Let me. I know where everything is. In the end, they had to settle for instant coffee. Black. The fridge hadn't been emptied in over two weeks. I never thanked you, Aaron, Barb said as they waited for the kettle to boil, for helping us, opening an investigation into what happened. Barb, I haven't done anything like that, Falk said. You understand that what I'm doing with Sergeant Rako is off the record, don't you? We're just asking a couple of questions, nothing official. Ah oh, yes, of course, I completely understand that, she said in such a way that he could tell she didn't. But you've got people wondering, that makes all the difference. It stirred things up. An image of Ellie flashed through Falk's mind, and he hoped Barb wouldn't come to regret that. Luke was always so grateful to have you as a friend, she said, as she poured boiling water into three mugs. Thank you, he said simply. But Barb looked up at something in his tone. He was, she insisted. I know he wasn't good at saying it, but he needed someone like you in his life. Someone calm with a sensible head on their shoulders. I always thought that's partly what attracted Luke to Karen. He saw the same sort of qualities in her. She automatically opened the right drawer and found a spoon. Did you ever meet Karen in the end? Fork shook his head. It's a shame. I think you really would have liked her. She reminds, reminded me of you in a lot of ways. I think sometimes she worried that she was a tiny bit... I don't know, dull, maybe? That she was the only thing standing between Luke and his big ideas. But she wasn't. She was steady and really bright, that girl. And she was exactly what he needed. She kept my son grounded. You both did. Barb looked at Fork for a long moment. Her head cocked to the side a little sadly. You should have come back for their wedding. Or any time. We missed you. I... He started to say it had to work, but something in her expression stopped the words on his lips. Honestly, I didn't feel like I'd be welcome. Barb Hadler took two large steps across the kitchen that had once been hers, reached out her hands and pulled Fork into her arms. She held him firmly until he felt a tension buried deep inside him start to waver. You, Aaron, are always welcome in my family, Barb said. Don't ever let yourself think otherwise. She pulled away and for a moment she was the Barb Hadler of old. She placed two steaming mugs of coffee in his hands, tucked the library books under his arm, and nodded to the back door with a matriarchal glint in her eye. Let's take these out to my husband so I can tell him that if he wants this house cleared, he can stop hiding in the barn and do it himself. Fork followed Barb out of the back door and into the blinding sunlight. He narrowly avoided sloshing coffee on his wrist as he sidestepped an abandoned toy cricket bat. Is this what his own life could have been like, Falk wondered suddenly. Kids' cricket bats and coffee in farmhouse kitchens. He tried to imagine it, working side by side with his dad in the open air, waiting for the moment when his old man would shake his hand and pass him the reins. Spending Saturday nights in the fleece with Luke, eyeing up the mostly unchanged pool of talent until one day his eye stopped wandering. A brisk but beautiful country wedding, the first baby arriving nine months later, the second a year after that. The fatherhood role wouldn't come entirely naturally to him, he knew, but he would make the effort. They say it's different with your own. His children would be friends with Luke's son, inevitably, 
They'd all have to take their chances at that shambolic country school, yes, but they would also have acres and acres of land where they could stretch their legs. Days working on the land would be long, of course, but the nights at home would be warm and full of noise and chaos and laughter. Love. There would always be someone waiting for him with the light on. Who could that have been, he thought. Ellie? Straight away the image started to blur and fade. If she'd lived, if he'd stayed, if everything was different. The idea was a complete fantasy. There were too many lost chances for that vision to have played out. Fork had chosen his life in Melbourne, and he was happy with it, he thought. He liked being able to walk down the street surrounded by people but without a single soul recognising him. He enjoyed work that taxed his brain rather than his back. Life was give and take. His flat may be quiet and empty when he returned at the end of each day, but he wasn't watched by curious eyes that knew every last thing about him. His neighbours didn't judge him or harass him and spread rumours about his family. They didn't leave animal carcasses on his doorstep. They left him alone. He knew he had a habit of keeping people at arm's length, collecting acquaintances rather than friends. But all the better should one of them ever again float bloated and broken to the surface of a river, a stone's throw from his family home. And yes, he battled the daily commute to work and spent a lot of his days under fluorescent office lights, but at least his livelihood didn't hang by a thread on the whim of a weather pattern. At least he wasn't driven to such fear and despair by the blank skies that there was even a chance the wrong end of a gun might look like the right answer. Luke Hadler may have had a light on waiting for him when he came home, but something else from this wretched, desperate community had seeped through that front door and into his home. And it had been rotten and thick and black enough to extinguish that light forever. Fork's mood was low as they reached Jerry, who was leaning on a broom outside one of the barns. He looked up in surprise as they approached and cast a nervous glance towards his wife. I didn't know you'd arrived, he said as Fork handed him one of the mugs. He's been inside helping me, Barb said. Right. Thanks. Jerry sounded uncertain. There's still plenty to do when you finish messing around out here. Barb gave her husband a small smile. Looks like you've made even less progress than I have. I know, I'm sorry. It's harder being here than I realised. Jerry turned to Fork. I thought it was time we came and faced it, confronted things. He looked towards the house. Listen, is there anything in there you'd like? Photos or anything? You'd be welcome. Fork couldn't imagine wanting to take a single souvenir from that terrible house into his own life. He shook his head. I'm good, thanks, Jerry. He took a large gulp of coffee, swallowing so rapidly he nearly choked. He felt desperate to get away from this place. He wished Barb would leave so he could speak to Jerry alone. Instead, they all drank in silence, watching the horizon. In the distance, Fork could make out Maldeacon's farm sitting squat and ugly on the hillside. He remembered the barman's comment about Deacon's farm going to his nephew. What will you do with this place? Fork asked. Jerry and Barb looked at each other. We haven't really decided, Jerry said. We'll have to sell it, I suppose, if we can. Put the money in a trust for Charlotte. We might have to bulldoze the house, though, sell it as land only. 
Barb made a small tutting sound, and Jerry looked at her. Yeah, I know, love. A defeated note had crept into his voice. But I can't see anyone around here wanting to live in it after all this, can you? And it's not like outsiders are lining up to move here. Have Deacon or Dow mentioned anything about joining forces? Fork said. Parceling up both properties for Asian investors? Barb turned to him, her face a picture of disgust. We wouldn't sell those to a $5 note for 10 bucks, let alone team up with them, would we, Jerry? Her husband shook his head but Fork suspected he had a more realistic view of the state of the Kiwara property market. We've had nothing but 30 years of grief from that side of the fence, Barb went on, her voice a little louder. We're not about to help him now. Mal used to sneak out in the night and move the boundaries, did you know that? Like we'd be too stupid to notice. Helped himself to anything he could find that wasn't nailed down. I know it was him who ran over Luke's dog all those years ago, no matter how much he denied it. Do you remember that? Fork nodded. Luke had loved that dog. He'd been 14 and had cried openly as he'd cradled it by the roadside. And he always had a houseful of town blokes hanging around until all hours when he was younger, didn't he, Jerry? Drinking and tearing up and down the roads in their trucks, blasting their music when he knew we had to be up at the crack of dawn to keep the farm going. That was a while ago now, love, Jerry said, and Barb turned on him. Are you defending him? No, God, no, I'm just stating a fact. He's not been able to get up to much like that for a while, has he? You know that. Falk thought about his strange encounter with Deacon at the pub. Sounds like he has some sort of dementia. Barb snorted. Is that what they're calling it? A miserable lifetime of bad deeds catching up with the drunken bastard, if you ask me. She took a sip of coffee and looked up at Deacon's land. When she spoke again, Falk could hear the regret. It was Ellie I felt most sorry for. At least we could shut the door on him, but the poor girl had to live with it. I think he did care for her in his own way, but he was so defensive. Remember the upper field, Jerry? We couldn't prove that was him. No, but it was. What else could it have been? Barb turned to Fork. It was when you kids were about 11, not long after Ellie's mum did a runner. Not that I blame her. The little girl was forlorn, wasn't she, Jerry? She was so thin, she wasn't eating properly, and she had this look in her eyes like it was the end of the world. Eventually, I went up there to tell Mal that she wasn't right, and he needed to do something, or she'd be making herself sick with all that worry. What'd he say? Well, he showed me the door before I could barely get the words out, as you'd expect. But then a week later, our upper field died. No warning, nothing. We did some tests, and the soil acidity was all wrong. Jerry sighed. Yeah, it can happen, but... But it happens a lot easier if your neighbour dumps a round of chemicals on it, Barb said. Cost us thousands that year. We struggled to keep afloat, and it never properly recovered. Fork remembered that field, and he remembered the tense conversations around the Hadler's dinner table that year. Why does he always get away with it? He asked. There was no proof it was him, Jerry said again. But, he held up a hand as Barb went to interrupt. But you know what it's like here, mate. It takes a lot for people to be willing to stand up and rock the boat. It was the same then as it is now. We all needed each other to get by. 
Mal Deacon did business with a lot of us and we all did business with him. And he collected favours, let the odd payment slide so he had a hold over people. If you fell out with Deacon, it wasn't only him you fell out with. Suddenly doing business and having a peaceful beer in your own town became a hell of a lot harder. Life was already hard enough. Barb stared at him. The girl was so unhappy she drowned herself, Jerry. She gathered their empty mugs together with a clash of ceramic. Stuff the business and the beer. We should all have done more. I'll see you inside. There are a thousand jobs waiting when you're ready. She turned and stalked off towards the house, wiping her face with her sleeve as she went. She's right, Jerry said, watching her go. Whatever happened, Ellie deserved far better. He turned to Fork, his eyes drained of emotion, like he'd burned through a lifetime's supply in the past few weeks. Thanks for sticking around. We heard you'd been asking questions about Luke. Started to. Can I ask what you think? Did Luke kill Karen and Billy? I think, Fork said carefully, there is a possibility he didn't. Jesus, are you sure? No, I said possibility. But you do think someone else might be involved? Maybe, yes. Is it connected with what happened with Ellie? I honestly don't know, Jerry. But maybe? Maybe. A silence. Christ. Listen, there's something I should have told you from the start. Jerry Hadler was hot but not unhappy about it. He tapped a light rhythm on the steering wheel, whistling to himself. The evening sun warmed his forearm through the window as he drove along the empty road. They'd had a solid rainfall that year, and out on the farm these days he liked what he was seeing. Jerry glanced at the bottle of sparkling wine lying on the passenger seat. He'd popped into town to pick up some supplies and had spontaneously nipped into the bottle shop. He was taking it home to surprise Barb, who he hoped at this moment was making her Friday night lamb casserole. Jerry turned on the radio. It was a song he didn't recognise, but it had a deep jazz beat he liked. He nodded his head in time and pressed his foot to the brake as a crossroad appeared ahead. I knew you and Luke were lying about your alibis for the day Ellie Deacon died. Jerry's voice was now so quiet, Fork had to strain to hear it. The thing is, I think someone else knew it too. Jerry was still 20 metres from the crossroads when the familiar figure flashed across on a bike. His son's head was down and he was pedalling furiously. From that distance, Luke's hair looked slicked back and shiny in the low sunlight. It was a change from his usual floppy style, Jerry noticed vaguely. Didn't really suit him. Luke sped through the crossroads without as much as a glance in either direction. Jerry tutted under his breath. He'd have to have a word with that boy. Fair enough, the roads were usually empty, but that didn't automatically mean it was safe. Behaving like that, Luke would get himself killed. He was coming from the south, from the direction of the river. Nowhere near the fields you boys said you were in. You weren't with him. He didn't have his shotgun. The river's not the only thing to the south, Fork said. There are farms for one, the bike trails for another. Jerry shook his head. Luke hadn't been on any bike trail. He was wearing that grey shirt he loved at the time. You know that awful shiny button-down one he always saved for best. 
My impression was that he looked pretty fancy that afternoon, like he was dressed for a date or something. His hair was slicked back. I told myself at the time he was trying a new style. Jerry put his hand over his eyes for a long moment. But I always knew his hair was wet. Luke was well through the crossroads by the time Jerry pulled up. As if to prove a point, Jerry brought his truck to a complete stop and checked both ways. To the right, his son's shadowy figure grew smaller. To the left, he could see only as far as a bend in the road. All clear. Jerry eased his foot onto the accelerator and moved through. As he cleared the crossroads and pulled away, he glanced in his rearview mirror. The image in the reflection was there and gone in less than a second. It had disappeared almost as soon as he saw it. A white ute flashing through the crossroads. From the left, following in the direction of his son. Fork was silent for a long moment. You didn't see who was driving? Fork watched him closely. No, I couldn't tell. I wasn't paying attention and it went by so fast I couldn't see. But whoever it was, I bet they saw Luke. Jerry wouldn't look at Fork. They pulled that girl's body out of the river three days later and it was the worst day of my life. He gave a small, strange laugh. <laughs> well, until recently. Her photo was everywhere, do you remember? Fork nodded. It had felt like Ellie's picture had stared blank-eyed and pixelated from newspaper pages for days. Some shops had put it up as a makeshift poster collecting money for the funeral expenses. For 20 years I've lived in fear of that driver coming out of the woodwork, knocking on the door of the police station and saying they saw Luke that day, Jerry said. Maybe they really didn't see him. Maybe, Jerry looked at his son's farmhouse. Or maybe when they finally decided to knock, it wasn't on the police station door. Chapter 19 Fork sat in his car by the side of the road thinking about what Jerry had said. White utes were ten a penny in Kiwara both then and now. It could be nothing. If someone saw Luke coming from the direction of the river that day, Fork thought, why wouldn't they have said so at the time? Who would benefit from keeping the secret for twenty years? One thought nagged at him like an itch. If the driver of the ute had seen Luke... Was it not possible Luke had also seen the driver? Perhaps. The idea grew, demanding attention. Perhaps it was the other way around. Maybe it was Luke who had kept someone else's secret. And maybe, for whatever reason, Luke had finally had enough. Fork stared unseeingly at the bleak landscape as he turned the idea back and forth in his mind. Eventually he sighed and pulled out his phone. He heard a rustle of papers down the line when Rako answered. Are you at the station? Fork asked. It was a beautiful Sunday outside. He wondered what Rako's wife would make of that. Yeah, a sigh. Going through some of the Hadler paperwork for all the good it's doing. You? Fork filled him in on what Jerry had said. Right. Rako breathed out. What do you reckon? I don't know. It could be something, could also be nothing. Will you be there for a bit longer? I'm sorry to say I'll be here for a lot longer. I'll head in. Fork had barely put down his phone when it buzzed again. 
He opened the text and his frown morphed into a small smile when he saw who it was. Busy, Gretchen had written. Hungry? Having lunch with Lockie in Centenary Park. Falk thought of Rako, flat out trawling through reports at the station and of the coffee churning in his stomach since leaving the Hadler's place. He thought about Gretchen's smile when she'd left him standing under the stars outside the pub. That dress must be all for you, you dickhead. On my way, he texted. Thought for a moment. Can't stay too long, though. It didn't really assuage the guilt. He didn't really care. Centenary Park was the first place Fork had seen in Kiwara that looked like it had had some dollars thrown behind it. The flower beds were new and had been carefully planted with attractive drought-friendly cacti, giving the park a lushness Fork felt he hadn't seen in weeks. The bench they'd spent so many Saturday nights on was gone, he noticed with a pang of regret. Instead, elaborate play equipment shone in glossy primary colours. It was crawling with children and every one of the picnic tables bordering the edge was taken. Prams jostled for space with eskies as parents chatted, breaking off only to alternately berate and feed their offspring. Falk saw Gretchen before she saw him, and he stopped watching for a moment. She was alone at a table on the fringe, sitting on a picnic bench with her long legs stretched out in front of her and her elbows resting on the tabletop behind. Her fair hair was pulled into a messy bun on top of her head, topped by sunglasses. She was watching the activity on the play equipment with an amused look on her face. Falk felt the warm bloom of familiarity. In the sunlight, in the distance, she could almost have been 16 again. Gretchen must have felt his eyes on her because she suddenly looked up. She smiled and raised a hand and he headed over. She greeted him with a kiss on the cheek and an open Tupperware container. Have a sandwich. Lucky you'll never get through them. He selected a ham one, and they sat side by side on the bench. She stretched out her legs again, her thigh warm against his. She had thongs on her feet, and her toenails were a shiny pink. Well, this is absolutely nothing like I remember. It's amazing, Falk said, watching the kids scrambling over the equipment. Where did the money come from for all this? I know. It was a rural charity thing. We got lucky a couple of years ago from some rich do-gooders fund. I shouldn't make fun, it's brilliant, really. Nicest place in town now. And it's always packed. The kids love it, even if I was heartbroken to see our old bench go. She smiled as they watched a toddler bury his friend in the sandpit. But it's great for the little ones. God knows they haven't got much else going for them around here. Falk pictured the peeling paint and lone basketball hoop in the school playground. Makes up for the school, I guess. That was more run down than I remembered. Yep, another thing you can thank the drought for. Gretchen opened a bottle of water and took a sip. She tilted it towards him the same way she used to offer vodka. Easy intimacy. He took it. There's no community money, she said. Everything this town gets from the government goes towards farming subsidies, so there's nothing left for the kids. But we're lucky to have Scott as the principal over there. At least he actually seems to give a toss. But there's only so much you can do with an empty bank balance. There's no way we can ask the parents for any more. You can't tap the rich do-gooders again? She gave a sad smile. We've tried that, actually. We thought we were in line for a windfall this year. It was a different mob from the playground, though. 
This was some private group, the Crossley Educational Trust. You ever heard of them? Don't think so. Typical bleeding heart types, but it sounded right up our street. They give cash to struggling rural schools, but apparently there are other schools more rural or struggling than us, if you can believe it. God help them. We made the short list, but no dice this time. We'll look around, try again next year, I suppose, but until then, who knows? Anyway. She broke off to wave at her son, who was standing at the top of a slide trying to get their attention. He slid down as they watched. Lockie's happy there for now, so that's something at least. She reached for the Tupperware as the little boy ran over. Gretchen held out a sandwich, but her son ignored her, staring instead at Fork. Hi, mate. Fork held out his hand. I'm Aaron. We met the other day, remember? Your mum and I were friends when we were younger. Lockie shook his hand and grinned at the novelty of the action. Did you see me on the slide? We did, Gretchen said, but the question wasn't aimed at her. Fork nodded. You were really brave, mate, Fork said. That looks pretty high. I can do it again. Watch. Lockie took off. Gretchen watched him go with a funny look on her face. The kid waited until he had Fork's full attention before he went. He ran straight around to do it again. Fork gave him a thumbs up. Thanks, Gretchen said. He's obsessed with grown men at the moment. I think he's starting to see the other kids with dads and, well, you know. She shrugged. Didn't meet Fork's eye. Still, that's what motherhood's about, isn't it? Eighteen years of crushing guilt. Is dad not involved at all? Fork heard the note of curiosity in his own voice. Gretchen heard it as well and smiled knowingly. No, and it's okay, you can ask. His dad's gone. No one you knew. Not a local, just a labourer who passed through for a while. I don't know much about him other than he left me with this amazing kid. And, yes, I know how that sounds. Doesn't sound like anything. Sounds like Lockie's lucky to have you, Fork said. But as he watched the child clamour athletically up the ladder, he found himself wondering what his father had looked like. Thanks. Doesn't always feel that way. I wonder sometimes if I should make an effort to meet someone for both of us, try and give Lockie a bit of a family. Let him see what it's like to have a mum who's not stressed and exhausted all the time, whatever that looks like. But I don't know. She trailed off and Fork was worried she was embarrassed when she flashed him a grin. It's a bloody shallow dating pool in Kiwara, muddy puddle at best. Fork laughed. So you never got married at all? He said, and Gretchen shook her head. Nope, never did. Me neither. Gretchen's eyes crinkled with amusement. Yeah, I know. Fork was never sure how, but women always seemed to know. They looked sideways and smiled at each other. Fork imagined Gretchen and Lockie living by themselves in the vast Kellerman property she'd bought and remembered the eerie isolation of the Hadler's farm. Even Fork who liked his own space more than most, started to crave company after a few hours with nothing but fields. You must get lonely on the farm on your own, he said, and could have bitten his tongue off. Sorry, that was a genuine question, not a terrible pickup line. Gretchen laughed. I know, with lines like that you'd fit in better around here than you think. Her face clouded. But yeah, it can be an issue.
not really the lack of company, it's feeling cut off that gets me a bit. I can't get reliable internet and even the phone coverage is patchy. Not that I've got loads of people trying to call me anyway. She paused, her mouth pressed into a tight line. You know I didn't even find out what had happened to Luke until the next morning? Seriously? Fork was shocked. Yep, not one person thought to ring me. Not Jerry and Barb, no one. Despite everything we've been through, I guess I... She gave a tiny shrug. I wasn't a priority. On the afternoon it happened, I picked up Lockie from school, went home, had dinner. He went to bed, I watched a DVD. It was so ordinary and boring, but it was like the last normal evening, you know? Nothing special, but I'd give anything to go back to that. It wasn't until the next morning at the school gates and I turned up and everyone was talking about it. It felt like they all knew and... A single tear slipped down her nose. And no one had bothered to call me. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I literally couldn't believe what I was hearing. I drove past his farm but wasn't able to get anywhere near. The road was blocked and there were cops everywhere, so I went home. By then it was on the news, of course. No chance of missing it then. I'm so sorry, Gretch, Fork said, putting a hand on her shoulder. If it helps at all, no one called me either. I found out when I saw his face on a news site. Fork could still feel the shock at seeing those familiar features attached to that terrible headline. Gretchen nodded, and her gaze suddenly focused on something over his shoulder. Her expression clouded, and she hastily wiped her eyes. Christ, watch out. Incoming, she said. Mandy Vaza. You remember her? It was Mandy Mantell back then. Jesus, I cannot be bothered with this right now. Fork turned. The sharp-faced, ginger-haired girl he remembered as Mandy Mantell had morphed into a neat, tiny woman with a shiny red bob. She had a baby strapped to her chest in a complicated sling that looked like it would be made from natural fibres and advertised as organic. Her face was still sharp as she marched across the yellow grass. She married Tim Vaser. He was a year or two above us, Gretchen whispered as she approached. She's got a couple of kids in the school, always got her hands full as the self-appointed spokeswoman of the anxious mothers group. Mandy stopped in front of them. She looked from fork to the ham sandwich she was holding and back again. Her lip curled in distaste. Hi, Mandy, he said. She pointedly ignored him, other than to place a protective hand around the back of her baby's skull, shielding it from his greeting. Gretchen, sorry to interrupt. She sounded nothing of the sort. Could you pop over to our table for a moment? Just a quiet word. Her eyes flicked smartly to Fork, then away. Mandy, Gretchen said without enthusiasm, you remember Aaron, from the old days? He's with the AFP now. She emphasised the last words. He and Mandy had kissed once, Fork remembered, at a youth disco from what he could recall. She had surprised him by poking her 14-year-old tongue deep into his mouth, tasting strongly of cheap lemonade as mood lighting glowed against the walls of the school gym and a stereo blared in the corner. He wondered if she remembered. From the way she crinkled her brow and avoided eye contact, 
he was certain that she did. Nice to see you again. Fork held out his hand, not because he particularly wanted to shake hers, but because he could tell it would make her uncomfortable. She stared at it, making a visible effort to resist the automatic polite response. She succeeded and left him hanging in midair. He almost respected her a little bit for that. Gretchen? Mandy was losing patience. A word. Gretchen looked her straight in the eyes. She made no attempt to move. The sooner you say it, Mandy, the sooner I can tell you to mind your own business and we can all get back to our Sundays. Mandy stiffened. She glanced over her shoulder to where a gang of mothers with similar hairstyles were watching from behind sunglasses. All right, fine. I, we, don't feel comfortable with, uh, with your friend being so close to our children. She looked straight at Fork. We'd like you to leave. Noted, Gretchen said. So he'll leave? No, Fork and Gretchen said in unison. Fork actually thought it probably was about time he headed to the station to find Rako, but he wasn't about to be pushed around by Mandy Bloody Mantell. Mandy's eyes narrowed. She leaned in. Listen, she said. At the moment it's me and the mums asking politely, but it can easily be the dads asking not so politely if you'd find that message easier to understand. Mandy, for God's sake, Gretchen snapped. He's police. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, and we also all heard what he did to Ellie Deacon. Around the playground, parents were looking on. Seriously, Gretchen, you can't really be that desperate, can you? That you'd expose your own son like this? You're a mum now. Start acting like one. The man who would eventually become Mandy's husband had once written and publicly recited a poem for Gretchen one Valentine's Day, Fork recalled. No wonder the woman was relishing having the upper hand for once. If you're going to be spending time with this person, Gretchen, Mandy went on, I've half a mind to alert social services, for Lockie's sake. Hey, Fork said, but Gretchen spoke over him. Mandy Vaza, she said, her quiet voice like iron. You think you're so all-knowing? Then do something smart for once in your life. Turn around and walk away. The woman straightened her spine, unwilling to yield ground. And Mandy, watch yourself. If you do anything that causes my son to lose a single minute of sleep or shed one tear, Gretchen's icy tone was one Fork hadn't heard before. She didn't finish the sentence, letting it hang in the air. Mandy's eyes widened. Are you threatening me? That is aggressive language, and I take that as a threat. I can't believe you, after everything this town has been through. You're the one threatening me. Social services, my ass. I'm trying to keep Kiwara safe for our kids. Is that too much to ask? Haven't things been bad enough? I know you didn't have much time for Karen, but you could at least show some respect, Gretchen. That's enough, Mandy, Fork said sharply. For God's sake, shut up and leave us in peace. Mandy pointed at Fork. No, you leave. She turned on her heel and stalked away. I'm phoning my husband. The words floated across the playground in her wake. Gretchen's cheeks were flushed. As she took a sip of water, Fork saw that her hands were shaking. He reached out to touch her shoulder, then stopped aware of people watching, not wanting to make it worse. 
I'm sorry, he said. I shouldn't have met you here. It's not you, she said. Tensions are high. The heat makes everything worse. She took a deep breath and gave Fork a wobbly smile. Plus, Mandy's always been a bitch. He nodded. (laughs) That's fair. And for the record, I didn't not like Karen. We just weren't close. There are loads of mums at school. You can't be friends with all of them. Obviously. She nodded at Mandy's back. Fork opened his mouth to respond when his phone buzzed. He ignored it. Gretchen smiled. It's okay. Get it. With an apologetic grimace, he opened the text. He was on his feet almost before he'd finished reading it. Five words from Rako. Jamie Sullivan lied. Come now. Chapter 20 He's in there. Fork peered through a thick glass panel in the door into the station's sole interview room. Jamie Sullivan sat at the table, staring miserably into a paper cup. The farmer seemed somehow smaller than when they'd been sitting in his living room. Fork had felt guilty leaving Gretchen in the park. He'd wavered as she'd looked him in the eye and said it was fine. He hadn't believed her, so she'd given him a smile and a push towards his car. Go, it's okay. Give me a call. He'd gone. What have you found? Fork asked Rako. The sergeant told him and Fork nodded, impressed. It was there in plain view the whole time, Rako said. Just slipped through the cracks with everything else happening that day. Yeah, well, it was a busy day, especially for Jamie Sullivan, it seems. Sullivan's head shot up as they entered. His fingers were clenched around his cup. Right, Jamie, I want to make it clear to you that you're not under arrest. But we need to clear up a couple of things we talked about the other day. You remember Federal Agent Fork? We'd like him to sit in on this chat if you're willing for that to happen. Sullivan swallowed. He looked back and forth, not sure what the right answer was. I suppose he's working for Jerry and Barb, right? Unofficially, Rako said. Do I need my lawyer? If you like. There was a silence. Sullivan's lawyer, if he even had one, probably spent 50 weeks of his year dealing with property disputes and livestock contracts, Fork thought. This could well be fresh territory for him, not to mention the cost per hour. Sullivan seemed to come to the same conclusion. I'm not under arrest? No. All right, Sullivan said. Just bloody ask, I've got to get back. Good. We visited you two days ago, Jamie, Rako began, to talk to you about the day Luke, Karen and Billy Hadler died. Yes. There was a fine sheen of sweat on Sullivan's upper lip. And during our visit, you told us that after Luke Hadler left your property at about 4.30pm, you stayed behind. You said... He checked his notes. I stayed on the farm. I did some work. I had dinner with Gran. Sullivan said nothing. Is there anything you want to say to us about that at this point? Sullivan swivelled his eyes between Fork and Rako. He shook his head. Okay, Rako said, and slid a piece of paper across the desk. Do you know what this is? Sullivan's tongue darted out and ran over his dry lips. Twice. It's a CFA report, he said. Yep. You'll see here on the date stamp it's from the same day the Hadlers died. 
Every time the firefighters are called out, they log one of these. In this case, they were responding to an emergency alert. You can see that here. Rako pointed to typed lines on the paper. And below the address they were called to, do you recognise the address? Of course. A long pause. It's my farm. According to the summary, Rako picked up the report, the fire crew was called to your farm at 5.47pm. They were alerted automatically when your gran activated her panic button. They arrived to find your gran alone in the house with the stove alight. Says here they put it out, calmed it down. Tried to call you, got no answer, but then you arrived back at the house. That was at 6.05pm according to this. I was in the fields. You weren't. I called the guy who wrote the report. He remembers you approaching from the main road. They all stared at each other. Sullivan broke away first, looking down at the table as though an answer might appear. A lone fly circled over their heads with a tinny drone. I was in the fields after Luke left at first, but then I went for a bit of a drive, Sullivan said. Where? Nowhere, really. Just around. Be specific, Falk said. Out to the lookout. Nowhere near the Hadless place, though. I wanted some space to think. Falk looked at him. Sullivan tried to meet his gaze. That farm of yours, Falk said. How big is it? Sullivan hesitated, sensing a trap. Couple of hundred acres? Pretty big, then. Big enough? So tell me why a man who spends 12, 14 hours a day on a couple of hundred acres of fields needs any more space to think. Sullivan looked away. So you reckon you went for a drive, alone? What's your excuse for keeping that quiet? Rako said. Sullivan glanced at the ceiling, considering and rejecting his initial response. Then he held his palms out and looked them both in the eye properly for the first time. I knew how it would sound and I didn't want the hassle. To be honest, I was hoping you wouldn't find out. For the first time, Falk felt like he was hearing the truth. He knew from the file that Sullivan was 25 years old and had moved to Kiwara 10 years earlier with his late father and grandmother. More than a decade after the day Ellie drowned. Still. Does the name Ellie Deacon mean anything to you? He asked. As Sullivan glanced up, a look flashed across his face too fast for Falk to read. I know she died, years ago. And I know... He nodded at Falk. I know Luke and... and you were friends with her. That's about it. Luke ever talk about her? Sullivan shook his head. Not to me. He mentioned her once or twice, said that he had a friend and she drowned, but he didn't talk about the past much. Fork thumbed through the files until he found the photo he was looking for and slid it across the table. It was the close-up of the interior of Luke's ute cargo tray, zoomed in tight on the four horizontal marks near his body. Any idea what they are? Fork said, and Sullivan stared at them. Four lines, in two columns of two, on the interior side of the tray about a metre apart. Sullivan didn't touch the photo. His eyes ran over the image 
as though trying to work something out. Rust? He ventured. He was neither convinced nor convincing. Okay. Fork took the photo back. Look, I didn't kill them. Sullivan's pitch rose. Luke was my mate. He was a good mate to me. Then help us, Rako said. Help Luke. Don't make us waste time looking at you if we should be looking somewhere else. Wet circles had seeped out under the arms of Sullivan's blue shirt. The whiff of body odour drifted across the table. The silence stretched out. Fork gambled. Jamie, her husband doesn't have to know. Sullivan looked up, and for a second there was a ghost of a grin on his face. You think I'm shagging someone's wife? I think if there's anyone who can confirm where you were, you need to tell us now. Sullivan went very still. They waited. Then the farmer gave a tiny shake of his head. There's not. Not quite right then, Falk thought. But he also got the feeling he wasn't entirely wrong. What's worse than being fingered for a triple murder? Falk said half an hour later, as they watched Sullivan get into his four-wheel drive and pull away. The interview had gone around in circles until Sullivan had folded his arms. He'd refused to say a word other than insisting he needed to check on his gran or call someone to make arrangements. Yeah, he's scared of something, Rako said. Exactly what is the question? We'll keep tabs on him, Falk said. I'm going to head back to the pub for a while, go through the rest of the Hadler's files. When in doubt, an instructor of Falk's had always said, follow the money. It had been sound advice. Rako lit a cigarette and walked with him to his car parked on a patch of land behind the station. They rounded the corner and Fork stopped dead. He stood and stared, waiting for his brain to process what his eyes were seeing. Across the doors in the bonnet of his car, the message had been carved over and over into the paintwork. The letters flashed silver in the sun. We will skin you, killer scum. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of The Dry wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.